Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are and what time of the day you're listening uh, to this episode of the S Podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to have with me um, Neil Sang. Neil Sang is a licensed football intermediary, well known on Merseyside. Um, he's appeared on various local media, etc. Uh, an intermediary for over 22 years and a former pro footballer. Um, I, I put on um, Neil. I put on Twitter last night that you and I were going to talk, mm. and somebody who's a Bangor City fan <laughs> said, "Decent player, but one paced." Well, do you know what? I would massively disagree. I'd say really quick over ten yards, really <laughs> talented footballer, bad attitude, <laughs> d- d- didn't want to defend. So I, I completely disagree with him. <laughs> All right, I'll, for, I'll forward you his details. Forward after. my comments. You have no clue. You'll never make it as a scout because that's massively opposite to what to what I was. <laughs> I could run like lightning over ten yards. The eleventh yard was a bit slower, and by about the twentieth yard, it was snail. It was snail pace because I didn't want to run then. But running forwards, million mile an hour. Running backwards, two mile an hour. Right. Did, did, yeah. Didn't want to run. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you'll never make a scout, our mate. <laughs> well, if anybody's ever seen me play football, I'm the exact opposite because I look like one of those cargo planes that are, <laughs> that are never ever going to get to the yeah, going to take off before they get to the end of the runway. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! But what happens if you do take off, though, Paul? <laughs> it's be a good performance after that, mate. If you get off the ground. Well, I, I, I mean, look, we're not talking here about my football career, but. <laughs> I'm in, I'm, I'm in my mid fifties, and um, up to up to last September, I was still playing most Saturdays. Oh well, there you go. So you're beating me. And um, well, yeah, but you know the standard of football that I was playing, and I did the opposite of what most people do. I started at the back and I worked my way forward. So, like when I was a, like in my twenties, I was a left back, and in my fifties, yeah. I was like probably playing what you call like a number ten. All right, so getting it on the half turn, popping little slide rule passes, create whipping things in the top bin. I can see it now, Paul. Uh, no, no, let's not go there. Because if anybody, if anybody who's seen me play football is listening to this, all my credibility will have disappeared overnight. Or better still, if anyone's got footage of Paul playing, let us know. I upload it on Twitter, please. <laughs> There is there is a web one one of the guys who played in like we've played in this veterans team, mm. and one of the guys uh, is actually very very a very keen like photographer and video guy. So there are loads of photographs and there is some video floating around, but I'm not telling you where it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. Well, I'll do you the courtesy of not even searching for it, Paul. How's that? Um, I might send it to you. I might send it to you privately. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, well, I'll watch it and keep it in confidence, and we'll have some private banter. Then, how's that? You, you could be my agent, and then we could, um, we could, we could see whether we could, I could get placed anyway. You know. I will reserve judgment on it, Paul, until you've listened to me in this podcast. <laughs> all right. Look, enough of the nonsense. Um, yeah, the idea. The idea, <laughs> and that really is nonsense. Isn't it? <laughs> the, yeah, the idea. The idea behind today is. Um, Obviously, you and I can chat about many things, um, mm-hmm. but is to sort of give give people an idea of uh, why football agents exist, what they do, how they um, benefit the game overall, 
yeah. how they benefit their clients, the, the players. Yeah. Um, and just let's look into some, some of the mechanics of the, the different things that you do. And obviously, this time of the year, uh, the transfer window is, is important. So, um, you know, what happens in the transfer window? What happens actually when you want to transfer a player? Um, and also what happens when it comes down to uh, negotiating contracts? Because we all have heard legendary stories over the years about mm. how negotiations have gone. So sort of a fairly wide range of subjects. But the idea is it for it to be both entertaining, but also educational, which is, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, important. Because I suspect not a lot of people really know what agents do. Mm. And the agents that they do know are probably unrepresentative of 90, 95% of the agents in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what do agents do and why should we have them? Uh, I, th- this this might be a 10-minute answer this, Paul. But, <laughs> That's fine. But, but, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and shorten it up. Cause you can, and listen, by the way, dive in as well and, and, okay. and question me on things because I want you to interrogate me and question me on stuff and, uh, you know, so so go for your life on that. But but why do they exist? Well, I'd probably start with why do why do we have estate agents? Why do we have travel agents? Why do we have recruitment agents? Why do we have lawyers who rep- represent somebody who is up on a criminal charge? Why can't that criminal uh, or the person on the criminal charge represent themselves? Well, well, research and science, you know, psychology science will tell you that we're very very hard. It's very very difficult to represent yourself. So that's probably the fundamental aspect of it all. And, and it goes two ways if you represent yourself, that the research will tell you. You'll either be really lenient because you're embarrassed to, to ask for what you, you feel your true value is and your true worth, or you'll be really emotional and really deluded and you'll price yourself out and you'll fall out with people. So that's why an agent in football, which is a really emotional sport anyway because it's about winning and losing, there's, there can be monstrous riches on offer for the players who actually make it and get those good moves. So in those negotiations, it, be, it becomes an emotional thing for those guys. So they can't do it. And in the past, they've tended when the you know pre-agents, you know, a world of football pre-agents was um, it was a typical scenario that a, that a chairman or an owner would dare I say bully, certainly cajole um, and 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 push and and force players to sign for contracts that was probably well beneath their value. Um, and that was just the way it went. And that's so, so owners now begrudge having agents in the game, but it's almost agents exist because of the, the owner's practice in the past. If they'd have always been fair and reasonable, players would never need to seek assistance or help. Um, if, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there, still, there wouldn't be any agents. I think there still would be, but it, but it gave rise to that. And the reason I think agents are vilified um, is because they've almost leveled the playing field. You know, they've almost made it fair, a bit fairer and a bit more reasonable. In fact, it's probably gone a bit the other way now. And I think that's why agents get, get so much stick. Um, so, so in a nutshell, why do agents exist? I think it's, it's just so difficult to represent yourself. Uh, there's far-reaching far benefits to, to having an agent. And listen, there's good and bad. But I think it's, it's mainly, it's difficult to represent yourself uh, and it's difficult to negotiate your true worth. I don't know whether you would agree with that sentiment, Paul. Um, well, as somebody that's normally represented myself uh, at an individual level, I think I, I, mm. I, I do disagree with that. But then possibly I'm mm. slightly slightly unusual in the sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that I'd, I'd rather I'd rather do it myself. But if I, if I if I cast my mind back to say how I was or you know what I knew of the world when I was like 16, 17, 18, mm. and had somebody knocked knocked on the door, had a, had a uh, Sir Philip Carter knocked on the door and said, or Harry Catrick knocked on the door, or, or Gordon Lee knocked on the door and said, you know, we've been watching you for a while and we want to sign you. Um, I wouldn't have had a first, the first clue as to, you know, what represented a good deal or not. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Without mentioning his name, one, one of my very best friends from, from school days had exactly that situation where fantastic all-round sportsman. Mm. Um, mm. And Everton Football Club hounded him and hounded his father actually so for for months on end to get him to sign a schoolboy contract so i think he was, i think he was 16. um so i think that was the contract that he said anyway in the end yeah. he, in, in the in the end he said no that he didn't want to be a professional footballer right uh, because of the hassle and because of the pressure and because of the um he, he felt that if he couldn't deal with it at 16 at, the, at that level there's no way that he could deal with it, even if he had the ability. And he probably did have the ability because he went on to represent uh, England in, in different, in, in other different sports. So, right. um, you know, he was one of those really annoying guys that was just good at everything. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, <laughs> if I if I think about it, you know, in in that context, then, and and this is obviously thirty odd years ago. Mm. Um, had there been a, had there been an agent, then yes, I think I, I think I think that's. That that's a valid um, valid comment. So a young fo- let, let, let's let's start at the beginning of somebody's career. A young footballer or a footballer with with, with talent. Typically, when when would they be first um, approached, or when would they first start thinking about uh, you know joining a club in order to you know if their career objective is to become a professional footballer? And at what mm. point in that process um, would would an agent typically be be involved? So well, so professional football clubs now, believe it or not, will have development groups from age four and five years of age, which tells you, for me, it tells you that um, they're really scared on missing any sort of players. So they, they'll bring loads of four and five year olds, and if they show show any athletic ability, they might they might keep them. And you know, I just think it's way, way, way too young. Uh, I think you can officially sign for the club now at, at eight years of age, so under nine. Um, and then you can legally represent somebody. You can sign a client to represent them in the year in which they turn uh, 16. So if a guy turns 16 on the 31st of December of this year, I could have signed him on the 1st of January as a 15-year-old. Um, so that's the legal side. But but what's the 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 there's a, there's different ways of looking at it. So I say to loads of parents, ring me and say, what what age do you? I've got somebody now um, from Manchester who's, who's been hounding me to go and meet them. Um, and I've got a guy in Chester who's who's got a really really talented son, but they're too young for me to represent. Um, but what I say to them is, I say, I'll help you and give you the best advice that I can, but fair advice, not 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 based on oh let me show you that I'm a, that I'm a good agent by hammering the club for a for a you know a scholarship when your son's fourteen and tell him to sign a pro or I'll move him. No, it my advice and service and support to families at that at that time is is to support mum and dad because it's worrying um, and to support the young boy and, and mentor them you're not representing them you're not signing anything you're not doing anything like that you're actually front-ending a lot of time efforts and, and, and a lot oftentimes your own money to try and support these lads and the reason to do that type of thing is um 
because it's if you can sign a contract for a club when you're eight, nine, ten years of age, moving right through to, to when you finish, that means if, if that club have you from eight to twelve and then another bigger club wants to sign them, that club can receive compensation. They can they can they can have money exchange hands on that player, but that's not deemed unethical, that's deemed training compensation. But if a, a, an agent moved a, 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 a 10 or 12-year-old player and tried to get paid, it would be world news. Mm-hmm. So and, and also illegal. So that, again, another reason why it would be world news. So I always say, you know, forget all the money and the, and the contracts and this and that. Let me, let me help the parents navigate a worrying time because there's so much expense and time and effort involved with parents to get players to, to academies four or five times a week. It costs them fortunes. It's really unnerving for players, you know, going to that big environment, big training grounds. Um, coaches can be, you know, can be a bit harsh at times and kids can get worried. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of, we're creating a generation of, of um, shall we say, less tough kids than maybe 30, 40 years ago. I think that's probably fair to say for varying reasons. Um, and, 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 and so it can be a bit daunting for those, those kids, Paul. So I try and support those, those young lads and say, What's the coach said? Okay, well, great. Why did he say? What? What? What do you think? How did you react? What do you think the coach would like to see? How do you think the coach would like to see you react? Blah blah blah. So mine's to offer that just that support and that reassurance that even if things aren't seemingly going well, it's fine. Just improve. You've got loads of time if you're 14. Um. So it's you know it, it's it's a it's a tough landscape for those kids. And as I said, I just try and offer myself up as a source of advice. I have no um. Uh, no issues if somebody thinks that's wrong. I don't because if I was a parent and I and I you know had a, a son who was trying to navigate um, dance uh, dancer acting or a daughter who wanted to navigate the, the dance world or you know, I would probably defer to people who are agents in that in that field and say you know how does this work if they want to make it you know what we got to do as parents so I'd probably want to seek that advice from somebody in the know as well so I put myself out there to support them and then when I sign them. Uh, as clients, if I sign them as clients, because sometimes I've had loads of kids who I've mentored who have chosen other agents for varying different reasons. Some some of them I agree with, some of them would make you feel sick, and they'll take money off agents to sign. Um, so I've lost them f- f- for those sorts of reasons. But loads and loads of them have, have joined me as well. And then you can really start that representation, the deeper side when they become full-time players. So there's a whole journey from Young Academy um, right through to Senior Pro that you can that you can offer a, a player as an agent, but but for me, Paul, it's always always about the person behind the player. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard so, me say before. No, I, you know when we talk privately, um, it's something that you always stress. So, how um, how how much? Well, I, I, it'll obviously differ from from one club to another, but speaking generally, do the clubs provide much pastoral care? So, because it, it seems to me that. From from your point of view, from from the, a, a young player's point of view, indeed from the from the club's point of view, mm. that a sixteen-year-old has got tremendous, uh, you know, maybe technical skill as a footballer, maybe a great athlete. Actually, a big element of whether the player is going to succeed is how balanced and how mature the individual is, um, from a mental perspective. Definitely, yeah. Definitely. Um, I agree a million percent with that. You can have the most talented lad on the planet, but if you get stage fright, let's just say he's a Premier League Academy prospect, but get stage fright or 
doesn't have the right attitude or he hasn't had the right ground and all the right psychology support or pastoral care as you as you've termed it absolutely um absolutely doomed to failure because there'll come a point where it's it's irreversible that so you've got to try and start that early and that's all about building confidence and uh, you know and building self-esteem some clubs are fantastic at it um some clubs aren't there are in, in some of the clubs that aren't great at that, there will be individuals within that club who are great, but it wouldn't be a collective greatness. So it's it's a bit of a, a, a smorgasbord of of, um, of abilities and the pastoral care from clubs. But as I said, I, you know, I can't speak for them, Paul. If I'm representing a player and sure. I don't think the club's given them the pastoral care that he needs or the psychology assistance he needs or the, you know, the, the self-esteem building, confidence building, stuff like that, I do it. And I tell the clubs that I'm doing it. And the clubs that know me, will say, they'll know me heart's in the right place. And, and I always take time to ring the clubs and I'll say, I look after Fred over here. Um, here's how he's feeling. Because oftentimes I'll know the player better than the, the coach will. Because the coach might only have him if he's in an academy for a year group and then pass him on. And then an under-18s coach will only have him for two years and then pass him on. I might know a lad from, mentor a, a lad from 12, 13 years of age. And then when he gets to 20 and he's, and he's represented by me as a young pro, I'm probably deeply ingrained in his life, in his family. They know me, they know my missus, my kids. You know, So there becomes a real sort of closeness and a, and a deep understanding. So that's one thing that, as I said, I think as a general rule, some do well, some don't. And some individuals do well and some don't. And it's, it's one of the things that if I could change, I would make sure that every player wouldn't have their backsides wiped. But if they're told you were rubbish today, I say it to clients, Paul, I would say you're rubbish today. But here's why I think you're rubbish. So do you want to tell me how you think you've played? Let's go through that bit. And then at the end of we've had our, both had our say, let's both decide, decide on a plan and a strategy so this rubbish performance doesn't happen again. How does that sound to you? And they go, sounds brilliant, brilliant, Sangi or Neil or whatever they want to call me. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds brilliant. Let's do that. Lots of coaches will go, you were rubbish today. You're in tomorrow for running there. And they'll scream at them and walk out the, out the room. Well, as a 16-year-old lad, I'm left hanging there. You know, because I'm a curious individual anyway. I want to know things. I hate not knowing. I love learning. So, I, and, and that goes back as a kid. A manager would shout in my face and walk out and tell me I was this, that and the other. I'm sitting there going, well, any chance of telling me why? So And that created a fear and a worry in me then. It created a little bit of, of a performance anxiety um, to the point of not a lack of confidence on the ball or lack of confidence to, to, to play, but a performance anxiety of, I actually don't know what good looks like in this guy's mind now. So it, it sort of unnerves you a little bit. You need to know as a young player, you're great at that, keep doing it and improve upon it if you can. You're not so great at that. So upskill yourself. And by the way, son, I'm your coach. So you know what? My job's to coach. I'll help you. If you want to stay back for 20 minutes, half an hour every day, I will do. That's rare as well. It's rare. So, you know, there's, there's a lot can be done better. Uh, absolutely a lot can be done better. But I think, um, I think you're right with the pastoral care. I think it's a massively important part of, uh, of any young player's um, grounding. It's necessary. It's not a nice to have. It's necessary to do. Yeah, I, I find I find that all of this really really interesting um, from a from a, a business point of view because mm. clubs obviously different clubs spend different amounts of money, but clubs spend a fair amount of money in 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 looking for uh, people that they or players that they believe potential players that they believe are, are going to be 
sufficiently talented to mm -hmm. succeed in the professional game. Yeah. It seems to me that the most sensible thing to do would actually would, would be, okay, you put investment into finding these players, so you have networks of people uh, to find them and you know what you're looking for, you know the characteristics that you're looking for. Mm. But, it, but then if you don't put the investment into uh, the proper training and the proper processes for the actual coaches themselves, um, you're, you're creating a massive inefficiency because you, you've got this X number of players that you're bringing through every, in, in each year group. Mm -hmm. And the success of those players, surely there's a direct relationship between the success of those players and the quality and the consistency of coaching from one year group to the next. And, yeah. and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're, you're almost mm -hmm. saying that, um, that the, the, the quality of coaching is almost down to the individual. Um. Yeah, well, coaches, so let me qualify. Coaches will run to a plan and a strategy that they will all agree so that the, the best serves players to develop for their first team. So yeah. in terms of the acting coaching on the pitch, it's, it's, it, it can be um, quite uniform right throughout the club. So if you looked at Liverpool Football Club, all their teams will play the same. Everton will vary it, and I understand why, because they want lads, if, if a manager wants to go, you know, if Ancelotti, say, for example, wants to change from a 4-4-2 to a 3-5-2, you've got to be skilled enough as a player to, to go and adapt. So, a Seamus Coleman, let's just say he came through the ranks as a young lad at Everton, um, he would he would be taught to adapt from playing right back in a four to playing right wing back, as a, as an example, or right, right centre back of the three. So Everton changed it up to give them that that again deeper sort of coaching. Where I think the um, the, uh, the 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 sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for the 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 differences really the differences that that um, exist between different coaches are more in in the pastoral care and softer side the sort of the softer side of development of a young player mm -hmm. can be different. And this is one of the things that rankles with me and has done since year dot and probably will do till year dot. Coaches, Barcelona get it really, really right for me. They pay all their coaches from under eight to right through all the same level. There's no hierarchy in, in, at Barcelona in terms of if you're, the, if you're the under 16 coach, you get well thought of just like you do if you're the under eights coach. In England... There's, there exists a hierarchy. So if you're the under 16s coach and you're in the pub on a Sunday, you're talking to your mates going, Yeah, I've just been elevated to under 16s coach. Yeah, well, you were only under 10s, weren't you last year? Yeah, yeah, I'm under 16 now. And I might be under 18s assistant coach next year. And then I'll be the under, eight, uh, under 18s assistant. Then I'll be the under 18 head coach. And then one day I'm going to be first team manager. So, and the, and the pay levels are different. And as I said, the, the, level of coaches, oh, he's a good coach, so he should be our under-16s or our under-18s coach. I think it's absolute poppycock because if you imagine a Lionel Messi at 8, 9, 10 years of age when he's ultra, ultra, ultra impressionable, gets the wrong coach yeah. who's climbing over other coaches to get where he wants to be instead of doing his job and developing players. What happened? Lionel Messi could have been lost to our eyes and we'd never, we'd never have enjoyed seeing him. Now, we'll never know, granted. It might be a moot point in many listeners' uh, opinions, um, but but it's also a valid one because you'll never know how many Lionel Messi's are out there from Liverpool who could have been something but weren't because of a bad experience with a human being. 
not giving them the, the pastoral care, not giving them a sensitive word when they needed one, not giving them tough love when they needed one. Because that's also important to mention, Paul, in terms of care from coaches. When they get an ultra-talented boy, oftentimes, again, not always, because there's some phenomenal coaches out there and there's some terrible ones. And all the coaches, if they listen, will agree. They'll If they think they're a great one, they'll also know some terrible ones. Um, but the, the, they oftentimes get a really talented kid and let him get away with everything. Is that right? Because they don't want to upset him and they don't want his mum to ring or his age to ring and say, you've upset him. He likes wearing number 10, but you've put him in the number eight shirt. He's leaving. He's signing for your rival unless you give him blah, blah, blah. You need to give them tough love as well. Mm -hmm. And I think people respect you for that because, you know, I say to players, uh, if they've played poorly, this is going to hurt me to say this to you because I want to tell you you're world class all the time. But if you're not, I'll also respect you enough and respect myself enough, my integrity and my honesty um, to tell you when I don't think you have played well enough because I'd hate for you to go a season and at the end of it, you go, you know what? I wasn't fit enough. What did you think, Neil? And I go, yeah, yeah, I saw that in like week three. Well, why didn't you say? It's a failure of your client. So you've got to give them that tough love. Sometimes, as I say, football club. I, I had a, is it a story for you. I had a, um, a Premier League club, a really talented lad, played for England, wasn't the brightest lad in the world um, academically, but which is fine. But 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 the club knew that, and the club thought he was going to be a top top player. Instead of making him go to college and educating him on why it was great to go to college and and you know and, and forward his education and, and how it will benefit his life, they went, well, we're not going to produce academics, are we? We're not in the business of creating scholars. We're in the business of creating footballers. Tell you what, son, you don't have to go to college. Uh, you just stay back at the uh, the training ground and watch films. I hit the roof. That is a gross failure of that young lad. And I think so. So that, you know, and that was probably a decade ago. Uh, I haven't had once as bad as that since. But there are there are things that happen that you think, wow, come on, come on, look after the look after the lads. That's all you've got to do because these boys sacrifice their childhood, Paul, for this pursuit. The least that a club can do, the very least I can do, my responsibility to them is give them the very best of me. Every single time they ring me, every single time I ring them, give the very best of me. And if I don't know something, I've got to find out, I've got to learn. Because the more I know and the more I learn, the better I can serve clients. So, you know, those type of things still exist. So it's it really is a tough environment for young players to navigate, particularly the young lads. It really, really is. Neil, can I just pick you up on one thing you said that You said that um, sure. you, you talked about these guys dedicate their, their, they lose their childhoods, they dedicate their childhoods to becoming yep. professional footballers. Yep. I actually think they do more than that. I think they dedicate, they, what they do by choosing to be, to wanting to be a professional footballer and their parents choosing to allow them to want to be a professional footballer and all the consequences of having an imbalanced childhood as a result of that mm. is they actually set themselves up for life, whether they become professional footballers or not. Yeah. Because, it, okay, if they become professional footballers, that's fine. Some will do extraordinarily well. Others will earn a decent living and some, some might struggle. Um, but nevertheless, they become professional footballers. Those that go through that process and then fail actually don't have anything else to fall back on. Yeah, and they don't they don't have the the normal experiences of childhood, the normal experiences of a you know a rounded education uh, mm. that other other people have. So yeah. 
this may sound, you know, um, a bit sort of idealistic. The, the clubs have almost as great a responsibility to those that don't succeed as they do to those that do succeed. 100% agree. Or the, in, in, the industry, let's not just say clubs, the yeah. industry. Yeah. If, if you're going to put very young children into the sausage machine at a very early age, mm. I mean, what is this? You, you just, all you do is you, you keep the survivors and those that drop by you have no responsibility for? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the, the, there's harsh reality. So when, again, it varies from clubs to clubs and individual to individual, but when a player is released, let's say, at the end of his under-16 year or at the end of his, his scholarship, his under-18 year, clubs will say, we'll circulate your name, we'll help you, you know, we'll get you a club, we'll do this, we'll do that for you. Again, some do, some don't. As soon as they know that you're not going to go and play in their under-23s as a young professional or, or, or have the potential to play in the first team, they almost wash the hands here. It's almost lip service to, yeah, we'll help you. And again, difference across across the board. That's not a one-size-fits-all. That's not me having to go at every club, as I, as I said at the start of that comment. Loads of clubs do it well. Loads, loads don't bother. And that's really sad to me. And that's where, again, when you, you asked about the need for agents, that's where agents can get involved, the good ones. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a lad, it's almost... If you've got a lad who, who hasn't developed that as you thought he might, doesn't kick on, loses his confidence, loses his way, loses his love for football, whatever way. And you're trying as an agent to force him into a trial or another move because you, you think it's the right thing to do for the kid or certain agents might think, well, you know, I need to get a fee, so I'm going to force him down this route. Um, whatever your motivation is as an agent. So, you know, you've got a duty to try and help that lad with the next step. I remember, again, I won't name his name or name the club. I had a lad uh, at a Premier League club, always lacked confidence, and I tried to, to educate him through confidence, through, you know, to try and build his confidence. I, I basically said to him, there's an old American football coach called Lou Holtz. And he, he made, because that was one, it's probably the biggest question I get asked. And I'll, I'll talk about the, the lad's journey in a second. But I always get asked, you know, my son suffers with his confidence. Neil, what, what do you think? So I said, I always put a pen on the table and I say, <clears throat> if I bet a pound of my money, Against everything you you have, will you take the bet? If I say the bet, pick the pick the pen up off the table, and the player always says, "Of course, I'll take the bet." And I say, "Why?" So all of your money, whether it's a hundred quid in the bank or a hundred grand, all of your money, money, your bet said, "Yeah," because he said, "I'll take your pound off you, Neil." And I said, "Why?" He said, "Because I know I can do it." I said, "Perfect." Lou Holt said, "Confidence comes from knowing you can perform a task for which you are asked." And, I, and that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, phenomenal. So in work that into a football context. If somebody says, you're on one of our five penalties, son, and you've never taken a penalty or you never practised them, what do you think is going to happen in, a, in an FA Cup final or in the playoff final? Your backside's going to fall out your shorts, isn't it? But you know, if you've seen that ball fly in the top corner five million times, you're going to go, gaffer, I'm having one. Get me, get me on one of them because you know you can do it. So that that's so going back to this young player who suffered with his confidence, some grasp that and some don't. He was just his personality was, you know, was he was just a lovely, lovely lad, personality, um, lovely kid, great personality, worked his socks off. Um, I could have moved him to probably four clubs when he was when he was released from his club. And I sat him and his parents down over a coffee and I said, you should go to the States and, and get yourself educated. 
And he was like, really? And I've done this probably with 10 players now. Um, go and get yourself educated. He went, really? I said, I don't care about me, don't care about my feet, but you're a super bright lad. You've done fantastic in uh, in college uh, um, at your club. You've done fantastic through your education, through your GCSEs. Stupidly bright lad. You'll go to uh, the States and smash it. Your confidence will go through the roof because you'll now see yourself being the best player. You'll get a great education and it's your best chance to be in a pro if you end up four years hence wanting to be a pro. Now, tell me, tell me many agents that would do that. They'd be forcing them into other clubs to get charged to, to earn a fee. It's not about me. It's only ever about the player and what's right for them. Not what's right for them, in my opinion. What's right for me, in my opinion, yet knowing them, if that makes sense, Paul, mm -hmm. through their eyes, if you like. Um, so I think that's important to state that the, that, that onward care from the clubs has got to be a little bit better. But, you know, if you think about it as well, Paul, with the numbers, every player can't make it. That The fallout rate's astronomically high. Um, and there will be in every single academy uh, up and down the, the land, all across the world, where there'll be one player maybe nailed on, a couple of players who they think they've got mega high hopes for, two or three chances, the rest of what I what I and the game terms cannon fodder. Those five or six who have deemed to have a chance or a great chance can't play football on their own in a team. They need five or six or seven or ten mates to make up a squad. And and again, now there are outliers, there are kids who have who are deemed cannon fodder or deemed on the periphery who suddenly have a growth spurt or, you know, something suddenly twigs in the game and they come through late or the they drop out the pro academies, go non-league and then come back through, you know, but you need a heck of a lot of stoicism and a heck of a lot of resilience for that and mm. a heck of a lot of world-class support. So it is a minefield and I'm still trying to find um, my way of improving myself so I can be a better servant to these lads because, as I said, I've been through the, the, the journey that they're all on. I understand and I've seen players on the same journey have gone and made it unbelievably well. Uh, other players who've struggled, everyone in between. So as I said, I just assess that my my responsibility is to, is to be there to serve their needs. Not what necessarily they want, but what they need. They all want to be Premier League footballers on 250 grand a week. But what do they need? You know, sometimes that's the conversation they have with them and the parents. What do they need now? What do they need in the near future? How can we shape their future for the betterment of not just their football, but their lives in general? Because that's, to me, is ultimately, you're alive more not playing football than you are playing football, aren't you? Mm, if you have an life as a as a as an adult in this day and age, so they're the sort of you know the the things that I'm thinking about as an agent all the time. So if if we look if if we look at the I mean that's really interesting. Thanks, Neil. If we look at the the game as it is now, obviously the game looks very different now than it did 12 months ago. If we were having mm. a conversation 12 months ago, it would mm. be, it, it would be different in the, in this respect. Yeah. If we if we accept that there's going to be. Uh, certainly in the lower, outside the Premier League, and even within the Premier League, there's going to be much less money floating around the game because re revenues, be it match day revenues, be it um, uh, merchandising, be it even broadcasting revenues, mm. are, 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 are going to fall. Surely the role of the academy and the role of the clubs and the role of agents becomes even more important, not less important, if, if, if you're looking, if you sort of got a strategic plan that says, you know, where's my football club? Let's say that you're a, you're, you're a Division One football club. Um, where's my football club going to be 
in five years' time. Mm. Mm. The d- developing players and making sure that the um, the number of players that actually end up playing the game professionally, either for your team or that you you've been able to get to a level where you can sell to another club. Um, that sort of efficiency rate, if want, for want of a better description, so how many of the, however many players I've got are going to make it in the game, surely what you're looking for here is, is much more efficiency and getting more young, pe- young players into the game, um, as, not necessarily as quickly as possible, but as efficiently as possible. Yeah, yeah. The efficiency is the word, isn't it? Absolutely. I think you've nailed it there. And, and you know what, though, I think, I think every club is sort of searching for that. I think Jürgen Klopp said, didn't he, quite recently, a dream of a team full of scousers, he said. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting. That was the first time I'd probably heard that from, from any top-flight manager saying about his, you know, about you know, the, the club, whatever city or, 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 or what town they're in. Um, and, and that is the case. So that really pointed for me towards his academy staff to say, can we do this? There's your challenge. You know, the, the, a lot of the lads here who've gone through there, the Nico Williams, the Curtis Jones, the Trent Alexander-Arnold, you know, these type of boys, you know, th- there's three all, already been around it. How many more can we get, fellas? And I think he's pointing to efficiency as well. And he's talking about, you know, about saving money and stuff like that. It, it, it is, it's massively important. But again, I think the, the, the sort of the, the demand from fans to win, the pressure that managers are under, you know, three defeats on the run, if we're talking Premier League, Term certainly three defeats on the run. You could be you you could your job could be under under threat. So quite quite how they blood all the young players and how they get them in is a is a monstrous undertaking of time because you couldn't go and blood eight of them in a Premier League game altogether or four of them, but you can put them all in the cup games and you give them little bits of exposure to first team environments. But I think it's going to be nigh and impossible to to do it. Um, I think Crew were the, the last club in the football league or the whole pyramid in, in, in England to field 11 academy prospects. Now, that's a phenomenal undertaking, but it's also um, indicative of their plight. Not the richest club in the world. They've got to develop their own. You know, they've got a, a, a small-ish scouting network. So they've got to employ really good coaches with good pastoral care, great technical elements, you know, give them all the different exposures they can and get those guys ready for first-team football. And, of course, they play at a level where um, it's, 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 more, it's, it's more easily doable because crew have almost become known for that. Their board aren't forcing managers to win leagues and do this and that. Crew exists because um, they're a decent club. They'll always flip between League 1 and League 2. They might have a standout year and get in the champ one year. Who knows? But they'll flip mainly between Leagues 1 and 2. And they'll exist by selling players. You know, trying to sell young lads, and they've got a, a phenomenal record, probably as good as any in terms of the amount of lads they've sold from their academy. So I think every club is searching for that, Paul. And quite how they do that is is all is, it, well. It's still on the discussion table, isn't it? Because other than Crew, I don't know any, and and I don't know, well, I don't know any other club that's done it, and I don't know any top flight club that's that's maybe had, you know, six, seven, eight. I think Chelsea are probably making a good fist of it at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're probably the only ones I can see. But but you do need the requisite talent. And then that falls back into what I said before about coaches. You know, it also falls back into the line of scouts. Are your scouts good? Because I, I, I hear a funny dynamic at clubs, Paul, where if coaches get beat because they're trying to get to be the under-16s coach, if they get beat, say, as an under-12 or under-13, 
it's the scouts that are terrible. But the scouts go, well, I brought good players. Our, we're getting beat every week because our coaches are terrible. <laughs> so there the needs <laughs> the need to be a bit more of a, a pulling together of the minds. And uh, let's not accuse each other of being bad. Let's work together and let's see if we can come up with a, a master plan of, of developing these lads that works in all manner, not just the technical and, and playing element, but also in the, in the personal element of de- developing the human being. So it's a massive challenge. And 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 I know clubs do do put a lot of time into it, some more than others. But it's uh, it's ultimately down to ownership and down to management whether they want to do it. And as I said at the start, fans demand wins. Yeah, you, you might want to go and put six or eight lads into your favourite club, Everton. And um, and if they get beat every week, they'll soon say get rid of those kids because I, I can't stand us getting beat five 0 every week. Uh, any chance you're making some signs for fifty million quid? So you've got loads of different stakeholders, loads of different opinions and loads of different sort of um, drivers behind whether a kid gets a chance or not. I hope I've explained that uh, well enough. No, yeah, listen, you have. It's, a bit it, of a minefield. It, it, it's been perfect. I mean, we've got so many different t- elements of, of, of your job to, to discuss. Um, but and this has gone on for a bit longer than I thought it would, but it's actually really, really, really interesting. And it, I, I personally think it, it would become even more important just because of the economics of the game. The economics of the game were pretty bust before COVID-19. They're, you know, they're even worse now. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think that part of the game, and I think the, cl- the, the clubs that really think about this part of the game and the, the agents that really think about this part of the game working together uh, are, in the long term, the people that are going to succeed. Um, definitely, definitely. You know, you're right. I, I, you know, just to add on to the point as well, Paul, that what you're saying and what, what I'd said before about giving young lads a chance in terms of the economic element. Alex Ferguson was probably the best there's ever been in, in many people's uh, views. I I used to look at him in, in with a source of awe, not because of all the stuff that he used to win and things like that, but how astute he was just as a manager, as a custodian of his football club. He was probably the best creative accountant ever in the game. And people say to me, what do you mean by that? Well, well, what I mean by that is, if you look at some of the players that he blooded and who didn't quite stick, but he sold for mega money. Mm. So the, so I won't go on and list millions of names. I'll, I'll list one that I thought was a fantastic deal. He blooded a lad called Fraser Campbell, who still plays now. Yep. I think he's at Huddersfield Fraser. He knew he probably wasn't going to make it, but he gave him around 40 games, 50 games in Man United's first team. Because it was Man United in the pomp, Fraser Campbell probably scores six, eight, ten goals. He knew he wasn't going to make it, but when the 3 0 up, he'll put him on, he'll nick a goal and make it 4 0. Oh, bingo. It's creative accountancy of the highest order for me in, in, in football terms. So, what he would then do is somebody would say, Is Fraser Campbell available? You know, he's not been playing for it. Yeah, well, we really like him. And. Why? What do you want to do? Well, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to pay half a million for him. Half a million? How dare you insult me? This lad's played forty times for the biggest club in the world and the most successful Premier League club. And blah. so we'll do that, and then he'll go, "Yeah, you're right, Sir Alex. Um, six million, do? Yeah, yeah, six million, and we'll have a twenty percent sell on, and it will have another million if he scores so many goals, another million on promotion, and blah. All of a sudden, that kid's fee from being nowhere near Man United standard is probably eight to ten million quid. And that's going back 15 years, Paul. So having a custodian who's got that um, is acute mental acuity, is that if that's the, the term, that real foresight to protect the financial aspect of his football club, to generate revenue, um, 
and, and maximise that, that revenue generation. His talent for doing that was beyond belief. And a lot of managers could, would do well to replicate that. Think about think about um, whether it's Liverpool, Evan, any other Premier League team. If you're three and up with 15 minutes to go, are you going to lose 4-3 because you put a young right winger on or a young number 10 or a young left back? Probably not. And, you know, if you do, it's probably not his fault either because, you know, the least thing he's going to do, he's going to run his balls off for that 15 minutes. Yeah. But you know what you've done? You've exposed him to it. So people could do well with that. It would serve them economically as well, wouldn't it? It would. And, and I mean, obviously, that's all about developing your assets, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. Um, but it also develops the kid because it gets him a £6 million, £8 million pound move. So what right. happens? He yeah. gets paid a fortune and yeah. probably has a, has a glorious next move. Fair, fair, exactly. Fair, further's that. At that young kid's career. Um, Definitely. The, the irony is that often, in, in a situation where you're, you're three and a half up or whatever, the fans can see it, and it doesn't happen very often at Everton, obviously, because we're not often mm. in a, not often in a position where we're three and a half. But you know, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> um, you know, and and yeah, I'm not I'm not naming names here, but like you know, bringing Theo Walcott on mm. in the 82nd minute when you're three and a half doesn't do anything for anybody. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. and that's it's unfair on the individual. But you, you know the point I'm making. Bring, yeah, you've bring just thrown his name out there as he's the you know probably one you've thought of. But you're right. I agree with you. Yeah. It doesn't serve. Um, but then that that you know that all comes back to uh, clubs having you know joined up thinking and having you know a strategy that runs all the way through the club. I'm sure you know Alex Ferguson's time at Manchester United. Every single person in that organisation, and I you know I, I know couple of the board members there at the time mm, mm. You know, it was sort of that was the business philosophy and you know you absolutely knew that that's that, that was that, that was the game the yeah. game was always about advancing the club yeah um, and if that meant helping the players to advance their careers then they knew that they were going to be beneficiaries as well mm. so anyway, look, absolutely. <laughs> we, no absolutely we, 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 we could spend the whole hour just talking about well, spend longer than now just talking about how, how to develop players and stuff. A couple yeah. of the things that we want, we want to talk about. So, what happens in in, in the trans? Let, let's talk about the transfer window for sort of 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's not a typical day for an agent in the transfer window, um, but what typically happens? So it, it could be different. So you can get a call from if you've got a client who's you know got a year or multi years left on his contract. You can sometimes get a a call out the blue from left field. The club might might want to sort of test the water with you. If we put a bid in for your client, would he come to us? What would his financial element be? Would you maybe know what the club's request would be? Would they sell him? So when you, you I think you asked me right at the start, that's almost one of the one of the other things that the the agents do. People always think of agents in terms of the player context and what they do for players, but there's also a major service for the clubs as well, with a source of information. Um, so. They can do that. So that's in transfer windows. That can happen. Um, if you've got a player who's maybe got a year left or two years left on his contract, you might know that a club wants him out. So you do your, your necessary work. You, you call clubs. You see who needs his type of position, his, ty- his style of play. And you just do loads and loads of groundwork and you do loads of prep work. So if you're talking, say, a summer window in, in, a, in a normal summer, you might, be, you might be doing that from sort of um, September, October, November onwards. Um, and hoping that you can nick him a move in the January. If not, you've started your work early and you've let loads of clubs know he's available and, and what the terms would be. So, so that's basically the job. And then there's a whole new job if somebody puts a bid in for your player or wants to come in and sign your player, whether it's on a Bosman at the end of a season or, as I said, for a, 
for a fee in season in the summer or in the January. Um, so you're just doing, you know, call it market intelligence, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're out there thinking Club X needs a left winger and a striker. Club Y needs a centre-back and a goalkeeper. And Club Z needs, you know, I don't know, needs three um, uh, attacking players, you know, right, left, central, whatever. So you're getting an assessment or an overview of what the market needs. And then you're trying to find if you've got best fit for those clubs, you'll mention the player's name and say he's available, club doesn't want him, he's available, he'll cost this, this is his current salary, um, is, is it affordable for you? And in doing in, in having all those chats, Paul, you build up a knowledge of different clubs and what they pay and what yeah. they, in terms of salaries and what they pay in terms of transfer fees, whether they balk at them. And so as an agent, you're, you know, there'll be certain clubs that ring and say, they'll say, Neil, will club X pay any transfer fees? Oh, yeah, 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 they've paid three in the last summer window for him and him and it. It comes down as undisclosed, but but I know it might be a substantial fee. So um, you're giving these clubs information. You're never, ever betraying confidences, ever. In my Listen, loads of agents will. I won't. I think it's just, it's it's a value that I hold dear. And I'll, I always have a saying, I'll never have my pants pulled down by anybody. So you, you never betray a confidence, but you've got a duty to your individual clients whether that's the player or the club. Sometimes I've represented clubs in deals. So, you know, sometimes a club is really, really close to another club and they don't want to go into a tough negotiation, so they'll employ an agent. Sometimes they don't want the agent of a, of a player of theirs to know that they want to sell that client. So they'll use an outside agent to tout that player's name around because it, it keeps the peace. Because if you think about it, if you, if you um, as a club, tell an agent, the agent of the player you want to sell him, what happens to that player's mentality? And you can argue, well, it's his right to keep his, his head and, and to keep giving 110%. And Well, of course it is. But he's a human being and he's going to be disappointed if he cares. So how do you keep him at full tilt if you don't find a potential buyer for him? So the service to the club would be, Neil, again, player A, don't want him. His agent is, is Fred Smith over there put it out discreetly into Europe or, or into the States or wherever you've got your markets or even in England, Scotland, whatever. We want to sell him. We'll take X number of pounds for him, but try and keep it in-house. Well, football's ability can be difficult, but but it's a service to a club nonetheless. And whether people agree with it or not, it's still a service nonetheless. Um, and, and and also the, the other service is if, it's, if it gets back to the player and the agent, Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the club will say, we didn't know Neil Sang was putting that player out. Oh, my God. I'll have a word with him. That's disgrace. I can't believe it. He's not for sale. <laughs> so you take bullets for so, clubs as well. So <laughs> let, let, let's just get this absolutely right. So you um, you have no contractual player player X who's, who wants to be, who club Y want to sell, but they don't want to show their hand to player X or to player X's agent. Yeah. You, you've got no contractual um, commitments to the club or to that player or, or, or that agent. They could approach you and say, we own the registration of this player. Um, could you discreetly uh, see if there are any takers for him for the, fo- you know, for the following price? That's perfectly yeah. acceptable. Absolutely. Yeah, but I, would, I wouldn't do that on word of mouth. I'd tell them to send me a, a mandate or an authority to do it and with an agreed commission in there. That's what I, that's what I would do. I think, um, and, and I think any business, any 
sort of self-respecting business and unless you trust that club or that individual within that club immensely you would always want some written authority on it Paul so but it's but it's absolutely a service there mm-hmm. are known agents who work for certain chairmen in the game you know they almost become a gatekeeper for the chairman some agents have been gatekeepers for managers so if you want to get a player to a certain manager it's it's deemed almost disrespectful if you don't speak to the manager's agent first how that works on I will never know um, but, <laughs> but 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 that but that's how it is and it's almost that they can block a player if you don't if you don't speak to them so there's 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 loads of good that agents can do and there's loads of things that are that that, that, that are terrible at and as I said again it's it's individual some are, some of there's some fantastic agents out there uh, and there's some absolutely shockingly bad ones who are all about themselves and don't care about lads um but 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 that's that, that that I think is a, is an FA FIFA problem. It, you mm. know, barrier to entry is, is it's too easy. I mean, it, it might be interesting for the listeners to know about the barrier to entry. Um, it's too easy for agents now. You pay five hundred quid, you get a license, um, and then you, you you renew it annually for two hundred and fifty pounds. So it was the old the, the history of it was when I first became an agent, you, you used to have to put a hundred grand bond up, which governed your ethical behaviour as an agent. And, um, and, and who was this with? Was this with FIFA or was it with the? Yeah, it was with and, FIFA. It was a FIFA bond. Yeah. So, so it, it and you signed a code of ethics. If you um, transgressed or you did anything anything untoward, they could find you part of the hundred thousand or all of the hundred thousand. If they find you any amount amount or all of it for you to continue your uh, with your agent's practice, you would have to renew that hundred grand bond the year after. Right. Or you would have to top it up. And then it became an exam. I was exempt from the exam because I got uh, what they called grandfather rights um, because I was already an agent for, a, for a, a really good amount of time. And then following the exam, which people said was a scam at the FA, it's too hard, everyone's failing, and it costs so much money to, to redo the exam. Um, the, the FA bowed to a little bit of pressure and said, OK, well, you know, we shouldn't have an exam or a barrier to MC like that. Let's just say it's £500 and you're in. Well, that's a disgrace, and I'll tell you why. If you're a parent or, or a young player of signable age, so as I said, 15, the year you turn 16 or older, and an agent knocks on your door and says, I am Neil Sang, I'm an agent, it's probably unlikely that that parent and that player goes, well, how long have you been an agent? Have you mm. been a player? What do you know? And interrogate the agent. The agent will probably just be allowed to do a sales pitch. Oftentimes, the player and the parent go, oh, isn't this cool? I must be good because an agent wants me. The agent only wants me because he thinks he's going to make some money from me. But it means if he makes money, I make money. Oh, this is exciting. He's going to get me a boot deal as well, you know, on a sponsored car. Well, that guy might have been doing some other job the day before. Suddenly becomes an agent because he's got 500 quid in his pocket and fails that player and those parents because he's wholly um, uneducated and wholly inexperienced to do the job. So that peeves me massively. And that's why we've now got probably more agents in this country than we've got professional players. So barrier to entry needs to be looked at. It's um, it's so, way too easy and it's failing the game and failing players. So this afternoon, I, I could um, what go to FIFA.com and, and fill, fill out a form and, and uh, put, put my debit card details in, send 500 quid off and, and I could be a registered agent. Welcome to the agents world, Paul, yeah. And there's no... There's no like police checks. There's no credit checks. Well, or if you want to work check. with mine, I mean, there, there is there are certain things. So, um, 
there's there are FIFA regs governing it. So again, it's it's about you know uh, criminal record things like that. Um, and then if you want to work with minors, you've got to go, which obviously yeah. Um, yeah. young players, you've got to go for the disclosure and bar and service checks as well, the DBS stuff. Um, so there are certain rules and, 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 and procedures in place, but but ultimately it's 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 not necessarily the, the procedures and the rules and regs that are in place. That it's it's the barrier to entry is so poor or so low that the that the that the agents um industry it's it's diluted to a point where 90 percent of it's laughable hmm. it really is it's laughable and and you know what there's a massive percentage of of agents who are licensed who have a daytime job in inverted commas and are agents of an evening and a weekend but again they probably wouldn't tell that young player and his parents that you know i do some other job during the day and i only do your stuff of an evening where managers and coaches and, and scouts want to switch off themselves because they've got families you know if you're not dedicating that that time to educating yourself as an agent to to, to best serve these lads, you're failing them. But yeah. again, <clears throat> I wouldn't do it if I was failing a player. But but I'm not sure many hold, hold up to my models or my values. Um, loads get in because they think of a nickus top player. I can make hundreds of thousands of pounds a year off one player. So I'm just going to keep keep nicking players in there, signing everyone I can get hold of, and hope I strike lucky. Well. That's not a targeted approach that I would uh, that, that I would think would be best practice. It's no, it's like if, if, if there's if there's minimum effort required to become an agent, mm. then you because you, you've not committed much yourself. There's really very little downside uh, yeah, yeah, to, exactly. to, to to being an agent. So exactly. all, all all you're spending probably is your time. Yeah. Um, and if you've got the free time, then it, you know it doesn't cost you anything anyway, other than you. Know, Obviously, administration and transport, transportation costs and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. it, 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 it's <clears throat> it, it's staggering that you have such a, uh, a high-profile industry uh, with an awful lot of money floating around, certainly at the top levels of the industry, and yet there's so little uh, regulation or so little uh, quality quality control across the industry industry as a whole. I mean. You know, we could we could have this almost have the same discussions about uh, people who are owners of football clubs. Okay, mm. there's a fit and proper persons test, but yeah. actually, you know, you, you you have to be fairly crooked not to get through that test. <laughs> yeah. Again, as has been evidenced by the the, the, the types of owners that we've we've seen come and go. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, you're, so what, what you're saying is not conjectured, is it? What you're saying is 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 factual. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean that, that that comment would stand up in any court. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's so sad that the, the game that we love and the game that um, affects so many people has 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 these inherent built-in weaknesses. Yeah, uh, that allow uh, unscrupulous people or. Not necessarily even unscrupulous people who are not necessarily qualified to do the role that they're doing. Mm. Um, that damages the game, but also, as we've been talking predominantly about young young players, actually can potentially damage the life of of, of individuals. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, mental health is is prevalent, uh, or you know, in in life now anyway. In in in, in um, and it's thankfully it's spoken about. Um, with a lot more freedom these days, and it's more widely accepted that we can all speak about that. But there are so many vulnerabilities that, that exist in young players, and, and um, 
you know, and, and sort of frailties that we that we need to look after. And as I said, the human beings thrust into this this world that's that can be so tough and harsh. You know, we have to look at we have to look after that. But you know, rules and regulations aside, I think it. And I don't want to sound like some sort of archangel here, Paul, but I wouldn't care if there's zero rules and zero regulations. That'd still be me. You know, it's it, it's that's just the way I'm made. The if you're gonna put rules and regulations therefore in place or the, in place, the, the you, you have to have somebody to enforce them, police them, follow through on them, uh, and make them worth the paper they're written on. And if they're not, they become a laughing stock. It's like if you shout at your kid, uh, "Do us a favour, son, don't kick your ball in here because I'll take it off you." And then 54 times later, your son or, or after six times, your son, son thinks. He ain't taking this ball off me, so I'm just going to kick it 54 times. He's an idiot. Or if you say, hey, stop kicking that ball and you mean it, and you grab the ball off him the second time he does it, he knows you're not messing. So we have, we don't have that. I don't think the rules are stringent enough as well to govern us. I would be absolutely all for more rules, more regs, um, more penalties, uh, stricter barrier to entry, way less aids. I mean, you imagine if there was a as weak a barrier to entry as uh, for a surgeon for a lawyer yeah what happens people die on the operating table every single time and criminals will be walking the street left right and center so come on wh wh why is football different a game that's got such a microscope we need to do better paul in loads of different regards um but we but we get caught up in all other different things as a game in general i never focus on some of the pertinent things that need addressing and, and again, it's a bugbear for me. Um, we have an agents association. We, we had a, a Zoom call where we had 254 agents out of the 2,500 on the call. But, but again, that says it all to me. Why wasn't the 2,500 on the call? Why aren't we all learning as one? Why aren't we all having a collective? Hey, fellas, shouldn't we all be doing it this way? You know, let's have a best practice amongst us as well. We can't necessarily slag off FIFA or the FA. Um, if we're not, um, robust in our thinking or in our practices either. So I've been a big proponent of of of, of um, good working practices, collaboration of information, you know, sharing what works, and making sure that those who become agents are really good guys under a strict code of of practice, but but also supported when they're struggling with some of the things that they need help with. Will we get it? <laughs> You know, you, you, you tell me, I'm probably more likely to, to find cheese on the moon than, than that to happen. But, you know, let, let's at least try. If we don't try, we'll never get so at least we've started talking about those sort of things. And lots of the agents have been receptive to that. And it's been great to, to hear. So who knows where that goes in the, in the near future. But all I can do is push what I think is right and continue to do what I believe is right for those individuals I serve. It's, I mean, interesting you use the analogy between like a surgeon or a lawyer. Um, surgeons and lawyers, if you go back historically, prote protected their industry by putting up barriers to entry. So yeah. you had to you had to be qualified to be a lawyer, yeah. to be a surgeon. And, and as a result, their status in life improved and their earnings improved and the quality of product or service that they offered uh, generally improved. Mm -hmm. I mean that that goes 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 without saying. Yeah, it, it seems to me that the <clears throat> professionalizing um, the the world of a uh, world of football agents, making yourselves into a professional body, 
with certain standards is, is the route to go. The problem, of course, is that until such a time as it, as it exists, people are still going to always, um, you know, do what they can do to earn a living uh, by less than sort of perfect, perfect means. One, definitely. We, I mean, we, we, I think we're going to end up doing another podcast because we've got so so, much, so many other things to talk about. But mm. one thing that maybe some of our listeners might like to uh, know about is what's the difference between a super agent and an agent? <laughs> the money they earn. <laughs> All right, you, you go on. The money they earn. You, you have to explain that a bit more then. Yeah, in, in a nutshell, I think it's the, it's the money they earn and the influence they have. Right. So, um, if you if and it all for, for sort of uh, works itself back to network. So, uh, George Mendes has got an unbelievable network that's been rooted and founded in Portugal with two or three uh, select clubs of the highest level and two or three select clubs at a low level. That he funnels those low level clubs into those higher level clubs, and then he has different clubs that he goes to uh, regularly in Europe when those higher level Portuguese players who've made it at your big clubs. Uh, are deemed good enough to move for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 million euros. Um, so it's rooted in network. So, and because he's he's done it very, very shrewdly, I have to tip my hat to him. He's done it very, very shrewdly that his belief was you didn't need millions of clubs to go to. You just needed three or four in each different region that trusted you. And that's how he's built his, 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 um, his value with these clubs. And that's how he's, he's, he's built his, uh, his influence. So now, if you look at Wolves, it's been widely, uh, again, he's been widely vilified. Uh, oh, he's running Wolves, he's doing all the players. But, you know, if Wolves get in the Europa League and Wolves finish really high up in the Premier League, I think they should be clapping the fella, not, not having a go at him. Um, mm. What would they rather? George Mendes wasn't involved in the, and the, they're playing in League One again, like they were back in the day. Um, so he, he's got an influence. He's obviously got a team of people. He's done it spectacularly well. So it comes down to the money he earns and the influence he's got and the, the sort of the circles and the and the and the, the you know the, the guys in which within which he moves. So that's what I would term a super agent. But to me, I have my own version of what a super agent is, and and that's work out what your players' hopes and dreams are, his fears and insecurities are, get him to be the happiest player, most well supported player that you can. Um, make sure that that you know you understand what what inspires him, what motivates him, um, and then you give you, you you'll end up having a happy player, a confident player, and then when you give a happy, confident player targets and a strategy for his development, it's a heck of a formula. So, there are different types in my world of super agents. If you take a young boy who's lacking confidence, who's struggling, who's out the team, and you see him make his Premier League debut, as an example. And I'm not saying that's an, a story, by the way. I'm just saying that's an example. That's a tear in your eye moment, that. So is that a super agent or is it not? If you've got a kid who's out the game, who's been slapped down by four or five clubs on trial and you find him a really good guy who's a coach, tell the coach the story. The coach believes in you as an agent and trusts your judgment on the, the lad as a lad and the lad as a player. You send him in on trial. The kid makes his debut in League Two as a 23-year-old. That's a tear in your eye moment as well. A kid who maybe has fallen to the wayside or going to the scrappy maybe has to go because he sacrificed his education, go and get a normal job. Suddenly plays in front of 8,000 people and starts earning £1,000 a week. To me, that's a super agent because, you, because you're doing it for the betterment of the kid, not for the money. 
because on low wages, what are you going to get as, a, as an agent? You're going to get some expenses yearly out of it. And if you do your job, you're probably going to lose money on that player. But you, but that's a super agent as well. So people will, people will term it different. The reason I said what I said at the start is because that's what football thinks a super agent is. Influence on money earned. Mm-hmm. Mino Raiola is, is one that's been termed super agent. I don't think many people would term him super, but, but, but that's what the media term him because they, they love that dramatisation, don't they? Yeah, I, uh, I, I find it fascinating. I, I find it fascinating, for example, that Arsenal are going away from an established method of uh, you know, recruiting young, young players that's worked for them for many years. Mm. I mean, you, you, know, you, can, you, you can argue. Um, Arsenal fans would certainly argue that they've not been successful enough given the resources that they have available to them. But they've got a bit, they've got a model that works almost at every level, yeah. Um, and now to go away from that and to sort of you know look to sort of farm out the recruitment, the scouting to to one super agent or nominally a super agent just mm. seems just seems extraordinarily risky to me. But then you know, yeah, hey, yeah. it's not my business. <laughs> no, but listen again, but we're allowed an opinion on it, Paul, aren't we? And I think yeah. you're right. It's it's ridiculously. Um, risky. I remember years ago there was a there was a, an agent who had a lower league club. Uh, it was a League One club. Had, had found out he he rep- and they had an academy. Uh, obviously, an under 18s. It was quite a big League One club. Under 18s, under 23s, or reserves back in the back in the day when this was going on. Throughout the whole club, one agent represented 33 players, including first team. Wow. And I said to the chief executive, because I represented a couple, uh, and he and he said, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. We're talking away. And he mentions this agent. And I said, I said, you know, you'll never be able to stop players signing for any agent um, unless players are, are, are impressionable and, and, and will, would rather listen to the club. And there are players like that over listening to their parents or listening to an agent even or a teammate. And I said, but you know the risk? And he said, what? I said, that agent runs your club. So what he said, he actually he actually owns you, because if he wants to, he can move seven of your first team out the building right away, and you'll have my two and another two left, and um, and good good luck because you're doing really really well, and he also has some of your best young players in your academy, so he, he also runs that as well. Good luck, and his face his face drained. It was a realization, but it's the truth. When you've got that level of influence and you're at the at the behest of an agent really scary really risky strategy you should want to know all the agents who's to say an agent in um i don't know why i'm going to pick pick peru but but, but an agent in <laughs> peru might have an unbelievably talented player you want to sign but he might not have a relationship with the agent who you've employed to be your club agent yeah you know he might have fell out with him somewhere so he's going to say well do you know what i'm not bringing him to you because i hate him he's let me down or he's shafted me on another deal and so that emotion can get in the way of deals sometimes, which is which is a joke because again it can cost the player a great move. But you should, as a club, know all the agents, have a good relationship. I'm not saying you should like them all, but you should try and have the best relationship possible because one day that agent might have the player that could change your your team, could nick you a promotion, could stave off a relegation. So you want to have a decent relationship with them all. I'm not saying you have to like them or agree with everything they do or say, but certainly have a bit of a, a working relationship with them at worst. Uh, and understand who they represent. And then the ones you genuinely, genuinely don't like, and I think this is should be stuck to rigidly, but football fails itself all the time on this point. If an agent 
is proven himself to be untrustworthy, underhanded, liar, blah, whatever, then you have to, as a club, say, you could have the best player in, in Peru. You could actually have the best player in the world, but we ain't dealing with you. Yeah, we're not doing business. We are not doing business with you because it, it, it then lessens our our values and what we believe in and our culture for doing for doing business in, in an honest and ethical way. So we're going to distance ourselves from you. See ya. And that's, but clubs don't do that. You know, I've heard work class managers say, I'll dance with the devil for the right player. And I think, really? Really? Because there's no guarantee any player works out, Paul. How many of you have you had hopes for at Everton that haven't worked out? Same at Liverpool, same at Man United, Man City, every other club. There's loads of players you think, oh, he's going to be brilliant and doesn't work out. So every signing has some sort of risk attached to it. There's no guarantee of success. So, sorry, sorry, mate, I'm going to find another player who's just as good as yours or maybe not quite as good, but will be uh, a joy to deal with and we'll have a player who's, who's maybe a bit more engaged. He might just turn up again, but you've got to have that integrity about you, in my opinion. Hence no. why I always try and do it in the right way because imagine if I've been barred from four or five clubs, let's say nine clubs, have barred me for, for unethical behaviour and I represent 25 players. 10% of the marketplace for those 25 players is now closed because of my behaviour. That's not fair on them. So why should I do that? Hence why, again, I've been absolutely crapped on from clubs in the past. But uh, I don't agree with it, but I handle it um, with composure. And I'll say, OK, don't agree with why you've done it. Can you explain why you've done it? Blah, 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 blah. think it was unfair. think it was unreasonable. Okay, boom. And you try and leave it on good terms because you know what? They might be the perfect destination for a client of mine at some point in the future. So you do what you've got to do to serve those guys. Again, it all comes down to that bit. So the Arsenal one's an interesting one, Paul. Now, again, we haven't seen the future yet, but in two or three years' time, if that is has been a play for that amount of time, we will see whether it's worked or whether it hasn't, won't we? Uh, indeed. I mean, like, I we've been talking for an hour and a quarter, so we probably need to... Um, draw a conclusion in a minute but right. it seems to me that in, in any business you don't the last thing that you want to do is narrow your options absolutely um best businesses always keep their options open for as long as they possibly can and you know that's a great negotiating tactic anyway in in, in again in any any business but um mm. it's absolutely fascinating listening to you because you've got a very different perspective on the game than i suspect most people have who occupy the role that you do yeah, and I really appreciate your honesty in doing that. So, oh, absolutely. Um, I hope everybody that's listened to this, and there'll be a fair number of people that do listen to it, um, have one enjoyed it, two learned something, uh, and secondly recognise that uh, agents doing the role properly uh, are a force for good, not a force for um, for bad. Um, yeah. That the game of football needs more good agents. Um, Regulation might be one of the ways of doing it, but uh, let's hope that more good agents get more of the business than more than, than the bad agents do um, yeah. for the improvement of the game overall. Absolutely, no, definitely. You know, that's that's certainly wish. I, I used to defend um, the industry of agents, and and after being slagged off by so many people outside the game and your know, fans, where you know even people within the game, I turned up at a, a League One ticket window once. For uh, to watch your client, uh, or I shouldn't say watch. I've, I've gone back on what I say to go. I always say I'm, I'm going to come and support you on Saturday because that's got the uh, 
the 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 feeling of I'm there for, for whether you play good, bad, or indifferent. If I say I'm coming to watch it, it's like I'm putting them under scrutiny. So <laughs> I've, bro- I've broken my own rule there, Paul. I apologise to any clients of mine listening. So I'm I'm there to support a player, and the lady on the ticket office at this League One club says, uh, "Who are you?" I said Neil Sang. Oh, um, who's left you the ticket? I said, "Player." She said, "Right, sir." Oh, oh, right. She looked at me with derision and went, "You're one of them, aren't you?" And I said, "One of what?" A scouser, a, a quarter Chinese uh, kid, um, a person with black hair, uh, a slightly plumper person would would like. What do you mean, one of them? <laughs> what, what, what? You're an agent. We don't like them here. And oh, I said, so I'm a bard. Am I allowed to go in? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 you can go in. I'm just telling you we don't like them here. And I I was like, I walked away and I thought, what do I do? Do I defend agents? Do I defend me? And I used to defend them publicly. You know, I used to do some a load of work on Radio City and I'd try and defend the industry in the early days. Now I just say, you know what? Why should I Why should I try and defend unethical people? Because there are some unethical ones out there. Do you know what? I'll just, I'll just concentrate on being the best version of me and that'll do. And if that lady still wants to look at me with derision, I think it's a problem, not mine. So I took it with good grace, Paul. Enjoyed the game uh, and drove home with a and had a chuckle to myself. So <laughs> and went to the armor shop to buy another suit of armor. So oh, it's uh, we, we have that, our, we have our trials and tribulations, but yeah, we we need to do better <clears throat> as a as a collective. Not just you know not not just as a collective, but I need to do better as well, and I need to find more ways of doing better. Because um, as I said. They sacrifice the childhoods. They, they sometimes lose education over it and stuff like that. Again, against my my advice, but sometimes they do. They want to throw all their eggs in one basket. But let's just try and do better. Let, let let's have a bit more integrity about us, and and, and the game will the game will be served better, won't it? Yeah, definitely. And in more difficult times, which we think is likely to be the case in the future, mm. um, the game needs more good people than bad. Um, and it's a fairly obvious statement, but it, it need, no. I think it needs to be said, Neil. Thank Brilliant. you so much. Um, Pleasure. There's, there's a whole load of questions which we never got to, so we'll probably end up doing this again, um, if you're happy to do so. Uh, Part two, bring it on. To everybody who's listened, thank you for listening. And if you have any questions, um, you know, put it on Twitter, and I'm sure either Neil or, or myself will get to them, um, and we'll try and find you an answer. Neil, thank you very much. My pleasure, Paul. Cheers.